Maybe we'll have a good surprise for you. And welcome in to This Week in Arsenal, episode 37. I am Sham at Shamsdale, uh, a.k.a. Jude Bellingsham. Um, and like I said, you can follow me at Shamsdale um, on X or Twitter, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, it is episode 37 of the This Week in Arsenal podcast, and we are here to talk about a, a pretty thrilling win against Luton, which is not what I expected to say a couple days ago. But um, yeah, it was very intense, hard fought 4-3 win, you know, required a 97th minute winner. Uh, so I've got two illustrious guests here with me to chat about that. Uh, first is Curran, who you can follow on Twitter or X at CurranBOP. Curran, how are you doing, sir? I'm all right. Uh, just about recovered, but uh, we're away here. We're good. Yeah. Um, and then we've also got Matt at Matt J A F C. Matt, how are you doing? Yeah, very good, thank you. Uh, especially good after uh, last night, which we'll get into. But very good, thank you. Yeah, it's great to have both of you back on the show. Uh, obviously, both of you guys are return guests, and we don't have Sash with us today. Um, he'll probably miss um, the next couple episodes. Uh, just not feeling super well, but um, you know he'll. He'll, he'll be around, and um, hopefully he should be back soon. But let's dive into the match, because, you know, that's what we're all here to talk about. Uh, again, like I said, we went to Luton Town yesterday. Uh, was supposed to be, or was projected to be, a fairly straightforward win, and it turned into anything but that and really required us to take things up to another gear and to kind of, um, you know, dig deep within ourselves to get the win. But before we talk about, you know, the play and, you know, some of the tactical aspects and the, the individual performances uh, that I think were very pivotal for that match, I think, unfortunately, um, it's it's probably for the best. So we just really quickly cover, you know, the refereeing and, um, you know, some incidents that happened there and uh, kind of at the end of the match. So, um you know, I think Matt, I'll I'll turn to you first. We had um I forget the name of this guy, he's so new, but it was his first match refereeing Arsenal, really seemed to just let Luton get away with a lot of challenges over the course of the match. Um, there were plenty of yellow card offenses that I saw. There were um, you know, there were multiple handballs in the box. Whether or not they were actually handballs, I guess I guess is subjective. Um, you know, there definitely was a, a two for penalty later on in the match where Gabriel was kind of pulled down um, and um, uh, and Sacco was tackled in the box as well. So I just, you know, I, I said something to the effect yesterday of the fact that I think referees in England kind of serve as equalizers more than objective arbiters of the rules. And I just wanted to see if you maybe agree with that statement and what you made of the referees general performance throughout the match yesterday. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think 
as you say, you know, him being the, or the first time he's refereed Arsenal, I think Luton away, what you're expecting from a refereeing perspective is probably to give quite a few free kicks to the home side, which is just the reality of it, I feel like, with, you know, the crowd's influence, which definitely played a part, just the general factor of it. And I think there was the one penalty shout with Gabriel, which is the pretty conclusive one. I think we've seen a lot softer, not given, uh, sorry, a lot softer given. And if that got given, it doesn't get overturned, which I think is quite a stupid thing in football because all it takes is the referee to think it's a penalty there, but then maybe he'll see it back in a few minutes and think it's not a penalty. Um, so a bit irritating with that one, uh, but got the win regardless. And yeah, the free kicks, as, as I say, it's a bit irritating. I felt like they were specifically targeting, not specifically, especially targeting Martinelli in the, in the early stages. He was getting kicked a lot. Uh, and it's frustrating to see. And I think you can dictate momentum when you do give free kicks to one side. But I, don't, I wouldn't say that's what happened in that game. Um, but in general, I don't think there's too much to talk about from the refereeing perspective, other than just the fact Arteta gets a booking in the last seconds of the game for just, it's just infuriating. Uh, he got, you know, got a second yellow for over-celebrating is how they put it. And I think I, I tweeted something like it's one of the worst decisions of the season. And of course, you'll look at a bunch of other decisions and you'll be like, oh, that's a lot worse. But it's what it means for football. Well, not that it means too much because it's probably a one and done, how, it, how it's been with Mikel. But if it is a, a president they go by, then what it means for football is boring. <laughs> a manager getting booked, a very, very small technical area, celebrating a last second winner is unbelievable. But um, yeah, it's it's, it's irritating. Uh, but got the win, and thankfully it didn't didn't cost us on this occasion with the Gabriel one. Other than that, it was just annoying. As I say, you kind of expect it to be how it is with free kicks at Luton. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I I I think aside from the penalty that was given, um, and I think there you know there were definitely a few challenges, especially by Luton center forward. I thought were kind of ridiculous, but. You know, aside from that, it's, um, you know, I don't think it's the most poorly refereed match I've ever seen or anything like that. But you, you're right. It's definitely that that yellow card and subsequent ban against uh, when we go to Aston Villa for Mikel Arteta that I think is the most important and the most infuriating aspect of the refereeing from yesterday. And, um, you know, before I give my thoughts, Curran, I just want to get your take on, you know, on that specific situation with Arteta and, you know, um, whether you think that was that was fair or you know ridiculous, and um, you know like if if you also worry about the potential impacts, like Matt said, that it could have on football moving forward. I don't care about the implications moving forward. I, I don't care. Um, the fact is that again and again and again, there is no consistency in the refereeing in this league. I, I don't. I don't give a shit about any of the. I don't give a shit about United. Res, uh, uh, you know, refereeing result. I don't give a shit about Spurs refereeing. All I want is if you do something in one match, you do it in the in, in the next match. The Hoyland one in the, in the uh, United derby in the Manchester derby, perfect example. Guy barely, basically tugs on his shirt, and he gets a, uh, uh, a gives away a penalty. Um, Gabriel's arm is pulled. Nothing, and he's got two hands on his arm. Mm -hmm. No penalty. Uh, okay, fine. Um, the one before that, look, does Saka run into him? Does um, he clatter Saka? 
I can see both arguments. I can understand that there's some confusion there. I don't mind that. But if you're going to say that Hoyland barely touching uh, Rodri is is a penalty, then what the hell was that? And as for Arteta, we've seen we've seen managers literally run on, even this season. I think Deserby did it. Oh, um, yeah, ran to, to the crowd, but, uh, almost fell over in doing so. Trying to set up, trying to celebrate. I think it was a winner. I can't remember who against um, this season. This season, not last season, this season, uh, nothing. However, Mikel barely steps on the pitch and it's over-celebrating in a yellow. doesn't make any sense. So, miss me with the, um, oh, but you didn't complain about when it was this. I don't care. Why should I care? Because you don't care. You don't care when it's us, so why should I care about you? It doesn't matter. That's It's, it's a simple fact. And the thing is, in the past, I've been like, oh, okay, look, um, this, this decision went for us and um, it didn't go... No one gives us the same energy, so why should I care? You tell me why I care, and I'll, I'll I'll start caring. But until then, I don't give a shit. Seriously, all I want is good decisions for Arsenal now, because no one else does the same for us. If he, if you started to come out, people saying, "Oh, look, uh, Gabriel should have had a penalty," I have a conversation with you. If you're not going to do that, then why should I give a shit? So it's that's that simple. Yeah, no, I I, I get that, and um, I. I kind of tend to agree with the point that this probably doesn't have implications moving forward. I think this is probably a one and done kind of decision. I I I just think the FA doesn't like Mikel Arteta to be to be you know pretty straightforward about it. I I think you know he is calling them out, uh, you know, with without much hesitation, and um, you know he's very open about the fact that he thinks they can be better. And the, you know, the FA and the PGMOL have obviously taken issue with that, in my opinion, and are now just finding whatever opportunities they can to inflict punishment on him for that, which, you know, um, is not what an objective arbiter of the rule should be doing. But yeah, I, I think they stitched him up a little bit with this yellow card and uh, we're going to miss him when we go to Aston Villa. We'll see what happens. Um, yeah as a result of his comments at Newcastle. But yeah, I, I think the whole thing honestly is pretty disgraceful. And, um, you know, that, that deserve video is making the rounds and, you know, nothing happened for that. Just it, yeah. It grand, yeah. It's just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'd say the only difference with the deserve one, if I remember correctly, was when the game was over, but that shouldn't have any difference with scoring a goal where the play, you know, like a manager coming onto the pitch if you're going by that logic, has no impact on the game, just like, you know, deserve be running onto the pitch at the end of the game. I just think you can't keep things robotic. You can't gatekeep emotions. This is fans, this is managers, this is anyone involved. It doesn't matter who it's against. You score a last minute winner, does, you know, you celebrate it. It doesn't matter what people on Twitter want to tell you. Celebrate it. Yeah, no, I think it's the, it's the worst faith to to tell people not to celebrate last minute goals. You're, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's, like that's kind of the thing that the pitch, like he took a couple of steps inside the pitch and went back and the pitch is, the pitch is so close to the stand. It doesn't, it's not like he's, he's gone running out from his, his dugout. It's, it's very tight. So literally he's, he's, he's taken like a step onto the pitch yeah. when the ball isn't in play. Sue him. I, I don't know what you want to do. I, I don't know. It's just very strange. 
Yeah, it's 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 ridiculous, and we're we're not going to see a call like that again. I mean, you know, unless they want to do it to Arteta again at some point in the future. But um, yeah, nothing nothing new when when we say that you know the the refereeing standards in the in the Premier League are just absolutely in the gutter right now. But I think one um, other uh, problem just before we move away from referees as well is I think sure when you think about it, any kind of decision for any team can get given. And referees will find a way to justify it. Once you realise that, you almost just start to question everything about referees and about the, I guess, authority of the decisions. Because hypothetically, they could give a penalty for a foul. You know, like the the Rodri, um, the Rodri Hoyland one, for example. Obviously, the fact that it got overturned is even worse, but they could give a foul for that and say, oh, but he's tugged him a bit. He's impacted him getting to the ball. Next time, as you know, as we've seen with Gabriel, they can ignore that being the case. But if they want to, nothing is stopping them from being like, okay, this is a penalty because we justify that X and Y is what's happened in this scenario. And that's why I think consistency is so bad as well with the, with the Premier League. And I think time-wasting as well the start of the season, they looked like they were going to put a big clamp down on it. Uh, players got sent off, I think, uh, a full and one against us. I think it was Bassi and Tommy Asu got a red card, of course, against Crystal Palace. And we've not really seen players get uh, booked for that or asking for yellow. So I think you, with uh, with what Curran said, consistency is such a problem. I hate talking about referees, you know, like primarily. And I thought just because we'll move away from it, I think it's a big thing to bring up. You can't have consistency when they'll be able to just justify anything which happens on any occasion yeah no it's i i think that's that's the that's the biggest problem is that you just never really know when they're going to get the cards out or when they're even going to make a call just because there's no set precedent anymore for for how they do things but yeah i don't know i'm i'm so tired of talking about referees i i have a 30 minute video about that coming out later this week and like ever since then i'm just uh, I'm, I'm done talking about it. It's just, yeah, it's not, it's not going to change. But um, one thing that maybe should change is perhaps David Raya's standing in the team and whether or not he's a starter. Um, he had an interesting performance against Luton. I'm not sure how big to go on the whole, you know, he, he was our biggest problem and he needs to get benched thing, but you know, we we went one nil up, and then we conceded a goal off of a corner. I don't really blame Raya for that. I think that was more of Martinelli uh, not marking his man properly. But then the next two goals that Luton scored to you know make a two two, and then to make a three two in their favor, um, you know those involved some pretty costly errors from Raya. Right, the first first one obviously he came out to get the ball during a corner, didn't make it, got beaten to it by a Luton player, and then Ross Barkley's goal. Just went right under Raya as he as he dove for it. Um, I think that one was especially uh, egregious in terms of you know the, the 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 level of the mistake he made there. So I, I guess the question I'm asking here is you know do you blame Luton being in this game for longer than maybe we expected him to be in it on the quality of Raya's performance or do you think there is something else in that? And uh, Karen, I'll. I'll I'll level that question to you first. For me, it's it's not acceptable to be for two of the three goals to let those in. Like 
the first one, you know, I understand that he he gets uh, he gets beat to the punch, and look, sometimes that happens. But the fact that he he doesn't understand where his um, uh, no, it's not the first one. The I think it was um, the first one was fair enough. It was a it, we we should have defended the corner correctly. Um, yeah. uh, it, I think it was the second one. Yeah, the second one where he comes and flaps for it. There's no need. There was no need for him to to come out. And he tries to do this a lot where um, his he 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 knows he can't reach it, so he tries to anticipate the cross. And when he does that, if he misses it, it's over. And that's what happened. He got he got basically he missed the ball, and it happened. And the third one, look, I, I, a lot of us come under a lot of um, come for a lot for a lot of goalkeepers. For example, Nick Pope for his gangly style, and he he uses his feet, and he doesn't really have the correct technique, but he gets the keeps the ball out. Ray's the opposite. How is how how is he there to, under his body like that? Use your feet, man. No, there was no need to go down to try and reach that ball. You could have just used your feet, kicked it out, and then we would have been all right. But well, not kick, but like just deflect with your feet and get it get it out of the ball. It wasn't. It just wasn't good enough. And that whole performance reeked of just like just just not enough confidence in his own ability. And to have that going away. There was someone, I remember, I think it was Ralph who said it, it was, um, he said we should have Ramsdale away and have uh, Ray at home and maybe that would work because Ramsdale's elite away and Ray seems to be handling it okay at home. But when you look at it, when you look at the clean sheets David Ray has had, he's never had a clean sheet when we've had more than one shot on target. I mean, that's, that's not something that I'm very comfortable with. The defense is so good that we don't allow him to be put in situations where he can be exposed to to get one shot on target as your maximum amount per game and just to keep that out and as, if it goes above that then it, he's conceded a goal it's just not a good it's not good enough and uh yeah i'm not i'm not happy about it but i i was i was very frustrated after the game because i was like oh, what are we going to do genuinely what are we going to do because it, if he's not going to bring ramsdale back he's just not I think it's, there's something's definitely happened there, and maybe it's because of the things that we've we've talked about before about whether it's the um, uh, the fact that he doesn't step out enough high enough in in the build, whereas Reyes takes a bit more risk with that. And he, and I remember last season they uh, Ram, Ramsdale came out and said we found a nice balance between me and Mikel to to create that uh, that thing. But he seems like he's found he's got rare now who will take a bit more risk and build and that's what he's he's most concerned about instead of keeping the ball out the net so i don't know what to do i mean there are options we could go with if ramsdale goes um i, I kind of lost my head yesterday i posted that that many on comp that got that got kind of crucified but it, look he he's an option there's diego costa there's this there's, there's there's options out there but it just feels like i don't I, it feels like ever since we've had uh, Arteta at the club, the goalkeeping position has always been one where we don't know what's going to happen because obviously Leno was a great shot stopper, but he couldn't play with his feet. Ramsdale's a great uh, guy to have. He's, he's good at both, but he's not great at either. Like he's a very, very good shot stopper and he's he's very good with his feet. But I wouldn't say he's elite with his feet, nor is he an elite shot stopper. But then again, you can build on what we have with Ramsdale. He's still very young for a keeper. You can still 
he he has the uh, potential to keep getting better and better whereas rare you can't uh you can't grow at 28 you can't grow an extra couple of inches you can't you can fix technique you can do the, all these things but the fact that he was trying to claim that cross for the second goal you can't change that that's not something you can be fixed because he has to anticipate the ball and try to get the ball um in his hands so he can he can uh you know stop the the goal going in because if he tries to to you know stay on his line or be a bit more conservative he's gonna get he's gonna get beat so it's it's not something you can fix with him. I think we can fix it with with Ramsdale. And if you want to go for another option, then you're going to have to get another keeper in. And then we go through this whole same rigmarole because Rail will be the number one. And then it, will he stay? Will he go? Et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it's not something that I have a, a coherent solution about right now. There are options, but like I'm not here saying, okay, next summer, get this guy and that guy and we'll sell this guy. And that will be, it's just, it's, it's, it's a bit confusing about what we're going to do now because every season we go through this. So, yeah yeah no it's um it's it's immensely concerning because i think with with the goalkeeping position and especially this year with bringing in raya it was one of those things where it has to work otherwise we're in just a whole realm of uncertainty with you know with what we can do after that right like you said if if it doesn't work out with raya and ramsdale has decided he's had enough and he leaves then you know, there's Mignon. There's a couple other guys, but I think any anyone who can actually come in and be, you know, pretty reliable on a fairly consistent basis, I think is going to cost us a lot of money, right? And we just have too many other positions that we're trying to, you know, to improve in right now, right? You know, we'll, and we'll talk about this later in the pod, but you know, right back and center back, and maybe a new striker in the summer, right? You can't really squeeze in a 60 70 million pound goalkeeper you know into those expenses so um yeah it's it's really concerning on that front and also i think something that city and liverpool have that arsenal don't is stability at the goalkeeping position right yes we're trying you know i think raya has traits similar to Ederson and similar to Allison in that, you know, he's really good on the ball. He can function as something of a center back in possession, but if we're constantly chopping and changing the goalkeeper, then I think that increases uncertainty for the, for the back line. I think that increases uncertainty, you know, throughout the team. And it's just, it decreases the consistency of our style of play. Whereas with Liverpool and city, you know, who's going to be in the goal until the day they leave. Um, And I think that's, unfortunately a disadvantage for us but um matt what you know what are what are your thoughts on the raya performance and kind of what this means for the whole goalkeeper conversation at arsenal it's problematic to be honest and the reason it's problematic is sustainability if it was just one off game it would be completely like okay you know he's looked quite good recently but looting away for whatever reason a few goals his fault could have cost us but if that's a complete anomaly fair enough but crosses primarily it's the biggest problem you, you look at even the newcastle one where obviously you know the shambolic refereeing decision and whatever but raya did completely miss the ball there for what should have been a relatively simple claim obviously the mudget goal i think i, I would excuse of him in terms of the mistakes he's made because that type of freak goal can happen 
obviously, you know, you don't want it to happen. It's not consistent to happen, but I've seen crazy goals like that. I think a West Ham player did it against uh, Edouard Mendy actually a few years ago. It, it happens. Football can be like that. But the goals we conceded last night were just pretty infuriating, to be honest, and it did make the game about 50 times harder than it needed to be realistically. We had the game in a pretty comfortable point. You know, okay, you could say first 20 were a bit slow, so we'll get onto the actual game shortly. And, uh, you know, didn't start the second half incredibly quickly. But, you know, what, what Curran said about us having one shot on target or having any more than one shot on target and there's no clean sheet is a pretty concerning one. And I think the problem is with the goalkeeping stuff is two things. I think... It's, it's hard to pinpoint why, but we've kind of gone from having two top quality keepers to two keepers who all of a sudden seem relatively flawed in, in multiple ways or don't seem settled anymore. And I think it's, you know, you, you say with, with under Arteta, it's always been a bit of a guess, guessing game about who's going to play in goal. I don't personally think that was helped by when Raya did join. He said that Ramsdale and Raya were going to rotate. That sounds like a ludicrous thing to do in general, but City have done it a few times, particularly in the cup. Ortega plays a lot. Brighton, Deserby have actually done it. So rotating keepers unsettles, you know, the defence or whatever else, or, you know, it's something you'd have to get used to, but it's just not happening. Like it's clear Arteta wants a number one and that's it. So then that raises the question that did something happen with Ramsdale? Is he just not, you know, obviously, you know, the stuff we've spoken about uh, with him on the ball or his starting position, etc. Maybe last season people alluded to with some of the mistakes, but I think that would also be pretty harsh considering how well he did do in games too. You're in a position now where even if you look at the most elite keepers or the ones who have been bought for the most amount of money, Anana's probably best case in point. He was bought for, what, 60-odd million and... He was pretty much, I'd say, viewed as one of the best options on the market. And, you know, he's, it's not started so prettily for him. And you've got my nan who always has injury problems and would cost a lot of money. So you've got a lot of different factors. And then if you take away my nan, who's the only exceptional option on the market for me, you then go back into that position of, do you get someone who's of a Ray or a Ramsdale level and hope that they thrive? But then you're at a point where Ramsdale's 25 and, you know, he was, for me, continuing, or there was continuous improvement season on season. So now you're in a point where you risk creating more controversy in a position, well, not risk, raising a lot more controversy in a position, setting a bit of a blueprint for teams that Raya in the air can be questionable and can be got at, especially from corners, which is problematic because it creates an error we don't need to have. And then creates another question in the transfer market. If Ramsdale does leave, do we get a young prospect goalkeeper? Do we, uh, does whoever we sign hypothetically now fancy their chances of taking over Raya because of how it's been with Leno, Martinez, Ramsdale, now Raya? Does, you know, does it not seem like a continuous thing? So it's quite a few questions now. I feel like we have ourselves. And I think on the actual, you know, goals we conceded, the first one, as we've said, more of a defensive, not mishap, just poor goal to concede, whatever, move on. Second goal was completely inexcusable for me, and that's the one which sets the bad precedent. And the third one is, it's frustrating, but I think if that was an isolated mistake, you'd be frustrated, but it wouldn't be that bad. But I feel like the second one, obviously the third one, don't get me wrong, is a really bad error. But I think it's just the principle of the second one, which just infuriates me quite a bit, and it does worry me. Um, 
as well. And as I say, if you do want to go back into that keeper market, do you then end up unsettling Rea? There's no real standout candidate who you're like, okay, we'll pay 50, 60 million on you. Maybe they turn out just as good as Ramsdale or Rea. And there's two sides as well to having a ridiculously good defence. I think uh, the lowest safe percentages in the league I saw earlier are Rea and uh, Edison. And there's two sides to having a ridiculously good defence. You've got one side where it's like, wow, you know, keeper has very little to do. But you've got another side that Ray has come from Brentford where, you know, they're a brilliant team and they're really well organised, etc. But he would be saving quite a bit. He wouldn't be used to this style at all. Whereas at Arsenal, we've hardly conceded more or we've conceded very, very few shots on goal as a whole. And that's something new for him to potentially bed in. Maybe that's the early start of it, but Arsenal can't afford for that to, you know, halt them in general because on another day that ends 3-3 and it's two points dropped and unfortunately the blame is uh, obvious I'm afraid so it's it's quite a few questions I feel like Arsenal now have which was I don't want to say avoidable because if Arteta thought Ramsdale or Rea was better than Ramsdale then fair enough I just think saying it publicly not in those exact words but not like dodging the idea or putting across that there could be two questions I think that would have gone better, but it's it's a bit of a bit of a confusing situation now. I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's just you know it just feels like we're back to you know square one, right? With this whole thing, it just it feels like we tried to solve the problem and now we have two problems instead of one. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens there. Maybe Rai gets better. Maybe you know Arteta and and Yaki Kenya. Um, you know, can work on it in the training ground with him, but it's been a pretty, you know, mixed start for Raya so far. And, uh, you know, that really showed, especially yesterday, you know, we, it feels like, well, not feels like he did have a string of really impressive games leading up to this point. And then he just kind of, it feels like he's squandered all that goodwill, which is really disappointing. But, you know, aside from Raya, were there, you know, were there any other performances or, you know, any other reasons that you think that um, Luton were able to be so competitive on this day? You know, is there something that we did that let them back into the game? Is there something that, you know, they did in particular that um, really gave them a leg up over us? Uh, and Matt, I'll, I'll leave that question to you first. I think... Logically, for me, when we won 1-0 up against that Luton team, I think we started relatively slowly in the first 20 minutes. And that was, I'd say, probably more testament to Luton than us. I think we could have been quicker. We kind of didn't really know what we were expecting for some reason in terms of players thought they had more touches on the ball. But quickly, that did change. So it's hard to really attribute blame anywhere else because you could even argue, I feel like once it went to 1-1, obviously it was quickly after the 1-0, I thought we played a lot better than before the uh, before we opened the scoring. And obviously you could say that's game state as well. But generally speaking, I think when you go 1-0 up at Luton with how Arsenal have been defensively, you think, okay, 1-0, Luton, you know, go forward a bit. They try to create a few chances. Arsenal catch him on the break potentially. Maybe they score in a different fashion, like Gabriel Jesus's shot, uh, which happened a few minutes after our first goal. Uh, you know, just something, whatever happens, you think Arsenal just go on and win the game relatively comfortable. And uh, also respect to Luton. So, you know, you could also think that the game ends 1-0 or just 2-0 or maybe Luton nick a goal. 
But for the game to be how it was, was, I'm afraid, just due to just really poor errors. And you don't want to pile it on Raya at all uh, because, you know, he'll look at that and he'll be really frustrated. You know, he doesn't need fans to know. And Arteta will be really frustrated and all that. And, you know, I'm sure everyone knows that on another day, that costs us. Uh, well, not even another day, another takeaway 30-odd seconds or whatever it is. And it costs us. But with your question of do you think there's anything else to really attribute, you know, the game being as close as it was, I'd love to say yes, because I don't want to pile it on Rhea. But I'm afraid I think we played a very good game at a tough ground. Uh, you know, you could say at times they won the midfield, not win, won the midfield, won a few more duels than they potentially should have. Uh, I think it was for the third goal, I want to say. It might not have been. It might have just been a general attack when uh, Erdegaard potentially could have just taken the yellow and fouled. I think it was Ross Barkley. Mm. But generally speaking, I don't really think you can attribute too much other than just giving them goals, which just made the game into, for one, a high-scoring game, which it just certainly wasn't, and two, one, which makes people who didn't watch the game think, oh, Arsenal are there to be got at or... Maybe, you know, they're looking a bit defensively fragile. From I think the most fragile you could argue in the whole game was that corner, that first corner. That's the one moment for me where you can attribute it to just sloppiness and uncharacteristically poor defending. I think it was Martinelli, uh, Corona alluded to, from the corner. But, you know, that happens. It's not ideal, obviously, but it happens. But to give away the other two like that, unfortunately, it just makes your life so much harder. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think I think we definitely did a lot to let them back into the game, especially with those two errors. I I also think White's defending for the Barkley goal was a little suspect. And um yeah, I I will say I think Luton's press was really impressive on the day. I think they made it extremely difficult for us in possession, which isn't really something I was expecting to be honest, but it it felt like they were just rushing us and harrying us and, you know, snapping at our feet for, you know, the full 90 plus seven minutes, which, um, you know, really made our lives difficult. And that's, I, I, I think that is kind of um, an aspect of the match that made things really difficult. Cause even when we were chasing the game, I, I kept thinking to myself, we can't bring on anyone who has a propensity for losing the ball. Everyone who comes on for the rest of the match has to be, you know, at least have that technical ability so that, you know, the ball's not bouncing off them in bad situations and we're not getting hit on the break because today Luton's going to press us. Luton, if they win the ball back, they will be straight down the pitch and who knows what they do, you know, when they get into our third. But, um, you know, Curran, I'll pose the same question to you. Was there anything that you saw from, you know, from either side that made this game more competitive than we expected it to be? Yeah, I mean... I think you guys have mentioned quite a bit. The only thing I would say is um, when we were, you know, the five said the first 60 minutes until I think 33, um, Martin was having a poor game. And I'm not going to, uh, <laughs> not going to sugarcoat. He had a very good 30, last 30 minutes. He, he woke up. And I think, as I, I, I'm pretty sure I said that in uh, in group chats on Twitter, I was saying he got bollocked at halftime. There's no way um, because he wasn't dropping in. And he was getting ragdolled by Barkley. Like Barkley was having his way with him. He was just, just running past him consistently. But um, to to be credit, and this is the thing I say with with all the players, if they play badly, but then they when it when they realise, look, we, we need to we need we need to turn on here. We have to get it up, and um, we have to make sure that 
we don't drop points here. He showed up. He, that last 13 minutes, it was his ability just to um, control the ball, get the ball um, out of the first into, into the final third. He, he stepped up a lot and obviously the assist at the end. But um, yeah, I think having um, the press, I think you mentioned it, very, very key to it. Um, they were very, they were pressing very well. They didn't give us a lot of space. Um, things that like um, not being able to have people inside the block. So um, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we're going to speak about Kai later. But for the first, uh, for the first, uh, I think it was the second goal actually, um, the white assist. But yeah, second goal. Um, there was no one inside the block. Kai drops inside of the box, uh, into inside of the block, gets the um, the ball wide, and by inside the block, I mean basically between the first and second line of the press. So the first three or the second two inside that area to progress the ball or get the ball into it. There was no one inside for a lot of that first half. Kai drops, picks the ball and and, and pops it wide. And that starts the progression going and gets gets the chance that leads to the goal. But there were a lot of large periods where the distances between our midfielders were not you know, uh, compact. They weren't able to get the ball through the lines very easily. And we ended up having to go wide a lot. And that kind of allowed us or allowed them to kind of go two on one with our wingers and try to trap them. And as Matt alluded to, um, ended up kicking them a lot. So, yeah, without um, that ability just to get the ball through the lines and uh, pick the ball up and get it through to a, a Jesus or even um, a Saka when he was coming inside a bit. It was it was very isolated at times in that first half, and I think when we decided to to actually have someone drop every nearly every time, it would, it would reduce a chance or get into a position where we were able to retain the ball higher up the pitch much easier, um, as opposed to you know leaving people exposed in areas they aren't really comfortable in. So I think those are the main points I would add to what you mentioned. But yeah. Um, that last 30 minutes, I mean, we'll, we'll have to talk about it, but um, we decided <laughs> to actually play football. And um, that was a, uh, an interesting development and um, very happy to see how it ended up progressing towards the end of the match because there were periods in that game where we were kind of letting them execute their game plan very well. And uh, I think that was the main reason why they were able to be competitive. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I agree with that point about Odegaard kind of going missing for the first two thirds of the match. You know, yeah. I, um, yeah, not only was, was Barkley really enjoying himself out there, but I also feel like Odegaard was kind of bouncing off of every challenge, you know, especially in those first 60 minutes, which was a little disappointing, but the other eight that we played on the day, I think had perhaps his best game in an Arsenal shirt. And it feels like I've been saying that a lot lately, but, um, you know, Havertz showed up, to make the game 3-3, you know, scored a really cru- crucial goal. That's his third in the last four. And all of them, if I recall correctly, have been either goals that helped us take the lead or goals that equalize things, right? Um, so, you know, I've, 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 been, I've been critical of Kai, but I've been very optimistic about what he can be for us. And it's been really nice to see him you know, break out of the shell a little bit and have these goal contributions and, you know, play a much more obvious role in the match in addition to, you know, all the off-the-ball stuff that we've been talking about for, for the last few months. But, um, you know, Curran, I just want to turn this to you and ask, you know, what 
what did you make of um, Havertz's performance and, you know, what particular aspects about it, whether it's the, you know, the goal or his movement or, you know, anything else? Um, what about that do you think is so important moving forward? No, I think there's a lot of things to take from this game. This is definitely his best game in an Arsenal shirt for me. And the fact that we've been able to say that game on, on game for the last, I would say, two or three games is encouraging. And um, to take forward, look, I, I, I don't like going into positions. Is he going to be the left centre mid? Is he going to be the nine? Is he going to be the second striker? Is he going to be um, a um, a ten? Is he going to be? It doesn't matter. It, genuinely, if, if if it makes you feel better, he'll be a second striker ten. But genuinely, it doesn't matter. What matters is is he has a skill set where he's very good in the air. He's he has the ability to to find space. Um, he's able to create space for others, and uh, I'm going to do a thread in a bit. Um, I'm I'm going to get the video um, of the of the goals and some of the things that he's done, and I'll I'll be doing a thread on Twitter later. But the theme of it and what is very key to say, um, what I'm talking to you, fine gentlemen, is he has this ability to make runs that take advantage of the opposition defense. That's very key, and that's the the main thing. That we have to talk about in this in this uh, in this instance, that is not only that he creates space, but even if you look at how his goal was taken, um, when the ball goes over from Saka, this is the third goal. When the ball goes over from Saka, um, both defenders are have their eye on Jesus. Jesus is is uh, standing. You can go watch it back yourselves if you're if you're listening to this. Go take a pause and go watch it back. Jesus is collecting the ball uh he chests it down and kai sees that he he scans he sees that both defenders are watching the ball they're not watching his run he starts from a bit deeper in the left half space and he runs and he just kind of ghosts into the space um that both the center back the the the, the right side of the center back is vacated uh jesus picks him out and he scores um, something similar happening at Lens when he got his tap and he found the space and he uh, was able to do the same with Brentford. He was able to take advantage of um, a two-on-one, him and Trossard versus the, the last centre-back um, on the back post. He has this ability to find out where he needs to be to, to get a goal. And that's the first thing. The second thing is, for the first and the second goal, um, Obviously not the fourth, he had nothing to do with the fourth, but the first and second goal. Look at the first goal, the Martinelli one. Throwing comes in, right? And Saka gets a hold of it. Kai makes a run to the near post and um uh pushes the line back. He pushes the, the entire the entire line back. He he moves inside and he pushes the, the line back, uh the defensive line back, and that creates the space for Marcelli to take his shot. Because the run that, that Kai takes, they they take his attention, they, he takes the focus of the defence to Kai. Kai leaves the space for Marcelli to, to, to shoot, and Marcelli shoots and scores. Now the second goal, um, the white cross, again, it's, it's it, he makes a run, it's near post, and both the defenders collapse on, on him, and Jesus is a free header at the far post. So both times, either he's taken defenders out of the game by pushing them to one side in terms of the second goal, or he's pushed the entire back line back towards their own goal to create a, a space for what we did so well last season, which was cutbacks into the box, um, 
for usually Erdegaard to to take that shot. But in this case, in both situations, he's created space for others to basically be free. There's, there's no one on Jesus for the header, and he's got the time and the space just to nod it in. Uh, for the for the Marseille one, yeah, someone's coming at him, but he still creates the space. So um, either he reads space very well and is able to attack it in terms of his own goal or create space for others so they can uh, take their, their chance and score goals. So uh, it was a very impressive performance. And I, 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 that's just the goals themselves. I haven't mentioned the fact that he was more aggressive when he was dribbling. He, he still got that, he still got that uh, tendency to underhit passes at times. And he needs to be more aggressive with that. But he wasn't doing the wall passes to no one, passing it out to uh, the touchline. He was being aggressive. He was turning and he was running into, into at defenders. He wasn't doing that before. And I know it's something very difficult, but you see some, how many times do you see midfielders or attacking midfielders run into nowhere or just run um, just run and or take a, an extra pass and pass it back? So it, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't know. Um, I hope that it continues and I hope that he... Uh, um, he keeps going forward. Um, we've we've known at times he's been a bit streaky, but this is, seems like something where he doesn't have to be the star of the show. He can create for others, and we know that we have the chance creation mechanisms to really find other people and create goals as long as there's space available, and that's what he's great at. So yeah, I'm very impressed with Kai. I think that he's um, come on leaps and bounds in a space of our I think two months. Um, so yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how he continues, and I hope that when we get into this winter period and just afterwards, which is going to be so key, um, let, let's see how he does. But yeah, that's all I've got to say. Yeah, yeah, no, um, you know, I, I think I think he was excellent yesterday, and <coughs> excuse me, um, yeah, I, I do I do like that point you made about him being fairly positionless. Because I think something that has been um, kind of a big driving force, between, you know, behind a lot of the lack of patience for him early in the season, I think has been the fact that people had in their minds what they expected from a left eight, and Kai Havertz is very different from that. And so I think a lot of people see something that isn't what they were hoping for, and immediately, you know, kind of are prejudiced against it from the outset, but. You know, yeah, I um, I think that's a brilliant point about kind of the movement that he makes inside the box to, you know, drag defenders away and open up spaces for his teammates. Um, because I think that is, at the end of the day, almost as valuable as, you know, as those goals or assists, right? Um, because we're going to be facing a lot of these low blocks. We're going to be facing a lot of very defensively organized and compact teams, and you need that kind of movement in and around the box to really open things up. And, you know, for, for as key uh, a player Granit Xhaka was for us last season, that's not something that he offered us, right? He wasn't able to, you know, make these intelligent runs in and around the box to really move defenses around. Obviously I think he was really excellent making those late arriving runs into the box, but that's a different thing. Um, yeah, Matt, what did, what did you make of Havertz's performance and, you know, what, what in particular have you seen from, from yesterday that really encourages you about him moving forward? Yeah, I really, I really liked what I saw yesterday. I thought he was our best player. 
uh, either man the match or to Ross Barkley from uh, Luton, who was unbelievable. But I thought he was really good, as uh, as Curran said on the ball, a lot more, you know, inventive, a lot more forward thinking, really, as opposed to, I think there was that one clip against, I can't remember who it was, but it was a Premier League game at home in the season where he had a chance to drive with the ball and he ended up just passing it back. And I think it just shows how much confidence, you know, impacts players. And the Bournemouth penalty, I think, partnered with the adaption and stuff as well. I think, obviously, it's a nice confidence booster, but that Brentford winner really, like, got his confidence up properly, you know, like having the fans chant his name at the end of the game, knowing that he's the one who's just won the game. It's really made his all-round game improve so much. And, you know, we don't need to lie about things. In the first part of the season, you know, he was adapting, he was struggling to make that impact. He looks like a different player now, and that's brilliant to see. And it is that back post as well, uh, or peeling off from Jesus, you know, vacating into the space. I think he benefits so much playing with Gabriel Jesus, who's such an intelligent footballer in itself. And I think Kai Havertz is just such an intelligent footballer as well. And when I listened to the uh, the Athletic pod on Kai Havertz, I was really intrigued because, you know, obviously the money Arsenal have paid and the wages, etc., etc., and Arteta's faith in him obviously speaks volumes and the fact he was linked with the other big names in the summer. But obviously speaks volumes about, you know, how people rate Kai Havertz in the footballing world. But, you know, it was obviously a lot of fans were very much like, a, mm, you know, you're spending this amount of money. You can almost sign any midfielder on the planet and you go for Kai Havertz. Well, not on the planet, you know what I mean? Uh, you can go, you go for Kai Havertz. And I think we're beginning to see you know, why he is rated as highly as is. Obviously, it's a small sample size, so I don't want to, you know, get carried away with anything because, you know, it's, you know, it's all about consistency at the end of the day. Uh, but but that athletic pod, they did just speak about quite how highly rated he was in general in football. And the fact that Arsenal envisioned him playing in the Mount role, which I thought was very intriguing. Uh, and that's what Chelsea wanted to do as well, uh, but couldn't because of Mount being there. So uh, very intriguing, very exciting stuff for Kai. As you know, you asked what specifically about Kai. I think just how much more aggressive he was with his running was really good. I think, you know, the dual winning side of things and the defensive contribution side of things, even when he was, you know, struggling, so to say, earlier on in the season, I think that was still quite evident that he was doing very well in that aspect. And uh, he's got a great aerial percentage, I think it is. Uh, and that's, you know, massive for games like Luton as well. And I think it's almost intriguing. I was kind of thinking about this the other day. Arteta obviously plans, you know, the fact that uh, Trossard started against Wolves and uh, um, Kai Havertz started against Luton and started against Lons, obviously does very well in the Champions League. It very much makes me think, uh, this is kind of just something I've slightly thought of, not really. Obviously, Smith Rowe's injury is very unfortunate. But it makes me think that Smith Rowe's the guy who will play certain games and Havertz will be the guy who plays other games. So it very much felt like Smith Rowe forced his way into the team before his injury. And, you know, obviously rotation so important. Obviously, it's a slightly off topic, but I think it's an interesting thing to, to discuss that I think Smith Rowe could be the guy for certain games and Havertz is the guy who Arteta goes for maybe in the more, you know, those Luton type of games because he seems to thrive in those smaller grounds uh, you know, the, the, not bigger atmospheres per se, but, you know, the more hostile atmospheres. And 
I was really happy with him. And I think one of the things as well with his goal scoring, I was quite surprised that he hasn't scored more in that regard because obviously it's a small sample size and pre-season isn't, you know, the be-all and end-all. But he scored a good few from that back post like he did against Brentford. So it was a bit of a surprise that it took that long for that to come. Uh, but I think that's what happens when Kai is playing closest to goal. Uh, and obviously, you know, positions is for me more about zones than anything. But that is what happens when Kai is playing far closer to goal. Yeah, I um, I also, I'm really encouraged by the, the more aggressive running on the ball. He did have that one moment where, um, you know, he basically got the ball turned and just took it past. I think it was two or three Luton players before laying it off for someone. And, um, you know, you're, you're right in that the beginning of the Kai Havertz era at Arsenal was not great for him, but you know, that and in the, in the goal and his movement in the box to open things up for Martinelli and Jesus. And um, yeah, I, I, I think we're starting to see a guy who's really adapted, who's really grown in confidence, who, you know, is more aware of, you know, the ability he has his role in the team and what he can offer, which is really nice to see. I, I think the thing about his performance that really encourages me moving forward. And, um, you know, again, I cite the fact that he scored two goals that have given us the lead in matches and he scored a goal yesterday that equalized at a very crucial time for us. Um, I think Havertz is a player who shows up, in you know, in situations where we need someone to to be a hero, to to step up and and, and be counted, right? And I think Declan Rice is another guy like that. I think Kyle Sack is another guy like that in this team. And you know, just to have another player who, um, when the chips are down, right, when when we need someone to to really just grab the game by by the scruff of the neck and do something, it's nice to know that Havertz is a player who can do that. I think he has that in his mentality. I think he relishes, you know, those, those big games or those definitive moments. So, um, you know, that was really great to see. And, you know, speaking of Declan Rice, obviously he, he scored the winner yesterday, you know, 97th minute. Um, the one that made Arteta go absolutely crazy and take a couple steps onto the pitch. And, um, yeah, I, you know, before, before I talk about maybe what the implications of that are, um, I just want to give you both a second to just wax lyrical on Declan Rice and um, you know just talk about how lucky we are to, lucky we are to have him. So um, you know, Matt, I'll hand that off to you first. Well, where do I start? Um, I think <laughs> the, the thing with Declan Rice's signing is it's not a player where it's like best available in the market, and not only is it a position which has generally been relatively saturated in recent years. But it's a player who genuinely comes once every 10 years, maybe more. We're talking about a player who, for one as well, with that one in 10 years, that's, you know, 99% of the time, that player is not ending up at Arsenal with how things have been in the past. But for that player to end up at Arsenal, for that player mentality-wise, you know, the fact he came for West Ham, uh, is uh, West Ham's academy and played as many games as he did for them, You've got leadership qualities. You've got some of the most crazy tackling just abilities I've seen from a footballer in recent years. His ball, um, his carrying of the ball was sensational. His, uh, his passing's underrated and can still go up levels. And, you know, 
that's what's exciting as well. Uh, we're not, you know, we're not seeing something vastly different to what West Ham Declan Rice was. Uh, and that just goes to show quite how good Declan Rice was at West Ham. And you're just talking about a player who, when the going gets tough, thrives. And that's all that's alongside every other quality he has. But it felt like Brentford, even without him getting an assist or a goal or anything notable, you just had that energy about him that he was the one to be like, all right, guys, I'm driving us forward. We're, you know, Saka as well was fantastic at that. As you say, you know, match winners and stuff, but players who just have that in them to be like, we're not drawing this game, we're not losing this game. Drive us forward, Chelsea, you know, coming up with a goal when we seen the bit out of ideas uh the goal against of course Luton United uh when the game seemed to be petering out once again it's just that ability to he's such an intelligent player as well you know the example against uh Brentford when he went he ran to the goal line as opposed to closing down the player which many players would do or even you know his analysis of his goal against Luton he said you know uh he could have just stayed on the edge but he took a gamble when I think it was in front of it was either on the side and then in front of him to lose his marker. He's just such an intelligent footballer. And I think there are still pile drivers or long range goals still to come from him with the amount of chances he does or the space he finds himself in that area, which is very exciting too. But just his just as you say, you know, just waxing lyrical about him. I mean what else is there to say, really? You've got someone who's just ridiculously quick, ridiculously good at tackling, an unbelievable reader of the game, only 24 years of age, a future England captain, a future Arsenal captain, a previous West Ham captain, leading a side to or West Ham to a to a trophy before he went, which is a great ending for him and just worth every penny. And I was thinking about this as well. The fact a player like Declan Rice is available. He wouldn't be available if it wasn't for the contract situation because West Ham ideally would be wanting around 150 million for Declan Rice. And there's a reason why, you know, teammates or whatever say he's pretty much the best in the game. And uh, I'll, I'll let Curran uh, wax lyrical a bit more than you, of course, Sean. Yeah, yeah Curran. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, there's not much more I can say about this guy. Um, it's very clear who he is. He's he's one of the best, if not the best, defensive midfielder in in the league, in the world, whatever you want to say. Um, he's a like I see people say, "Oh, Rodri's better." This Rodri's better. Look, Rodri is a very very good defensive midfielder. He's someone that gets the ball ticking. They're very very different players. Rodri in transition is nowhere near what Declan Rice is in transition, but Declan Rice is nowhere near. Rodri in terms of progressing the ball at this moment in time. Like they're very different players. But for what we need, he is everything we needed. He's everything we needed. He we we conceded the least amount of expected goals against us in the entire Premier League. Him, Saliba, Gabriel. Done. We're not getting past us. It's just not happening. So to have him in front of that back four, it's it's much more secure. It's much more um able to withstand these tough away days and we were so good away last year but this year like that game ends 3-3 last year for me it's stank of that second half stank of southampton at home it's stank of like um one of those games where it just just kind of peters out i remember people saying oh this is ending three this is ending three three this is ending three three and we managed to find a way and that's only because we were able to to kind of box them in their half 
And the rumors we can box them in their half is because our center backs are high and Declan Rice is basically screening in front of them. He does everything we need in terms of being able to get these. I know you mentioned about what was it, 25% of our goals coming in the last 18 in the last 15 minutes, something like this. It's only because we have the ability to squash a pitch, make it sort of a a half pitch game, squash the pitch up, and make sure that we can get the um, uh, the goals in in when we need them the most. I mean, and obviously this it's not just today. If you look at the, for example, the United game, the ability to create the pressure to create that corner that creates the um, the uh, the moment of magic from Declan Rice that. That says it at all. And the reason they had their chance was because um, that Garnacho disallowed goals, because we were so high on the pitch. Um, and he allows us to be that high on the pitch. So, yeah, I have nothing to say apart from I told you so. That's what, that's what I can say. Um, I tried telling people for, for years. Um, that this is <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I, I'm just happy to have him. I remember I, I just, I remember to, I went kind of crazy at the end of the, at the, end of the game. And yeah, uh, just so happy to have him. Yeah, I was um I was watching the game in my office and I had to celebrate quietly uh so that my boss did not find out I was watching the game on my computer. But <laughs> Brilliant. I was I was yeah, I was just running around my office like whisper screaming. Um yeah, no, I mean he's I don't know. Like he, he, I you you run out of things to say about a guy like that. He is the perfect player for us you know that he is he is the best case scenario for what we could have done in that position this summer and you know from the start i I think every i think every player is different in terms of when they arrive at a new team what they require in order to adapt right and from the start i've never been anything but absolutely sure that rice is going to be a success with us because you know, we we paid the premium for this guy, and from the moment he walked in the door, he was he was all business. He was all Arsenal, right? And even last night, he said, "I'm you know I'm I'm very blessed. I I get to play for for the Arsenal every week." Um, you know, he he really understands what it's about to play for the club. And on top of that, I think I agree, Curran. I think he's the best in his position in the world, and uh, that isn't. I don't think that's necessarily a new thing. Just because we have him, I think he was hitting that status last year as well, with that, with West Ham. And um, yeah, you know, like I said earlier, he's just a guy who stands up to be counted when um, when we need him to. When um, you know, when we're in a difficult moment. And yeah, just just a phenomenal player. I'm looking forward to seeing the statue of him built outside the Emirates in you know 15, 20 years time. Uh, he'll probably have earned it by then. So. Um, but I, I do want to kind of ask maybe a bit of a downer of a question here. And it, it does have to do with that stat that you um, cited earlier, right? So this is according to this is something that LondonWorld.com tweeted out. So I haven't had a chance to verify whether or not it's accurate. But according to them, 25% of our goals scored so far this season have come after the 80th minute of the match. So, you know, um, and Colonel, I'll go to you first. Do you think that's concerning that, you know, um, so many of our goals are coming that late in the match? Or do you think it's indicative of, you know, of a fighting spirit, of playing until the end of, you know, a an elite level of commitment? Where do you where do you kind of fall there? Last year, I don't know if you remember, uh, and the listeners I'm sure remember as well, is um, 
we started games very well last season. That was our thing. First 30 minutes, we'll blitz you, and then it kind of got touchy towards the end in some games. This year, we start kind of slow. We try to be a bit more methodical. The blocks are a lot lower. Um, people are trying to double up on our wingers and try to make it a game of for us. It, I, I don't think it's concerning. I don't think it's something to be praised. I think that's just the way the game goes sometimes. It's just, I feel like there's a lot of goals people can you can score at any period of the game. The fact that we're scoring late, it just shows it's taking us a bit more time to break down blocks, and we're still trying to find our feet offensively. And the other thing I want to mention is um, we haven't been at our best offensively this season. We've also not had most of the season off our starting front three with Havertz, with um, Martin, with Rice. Um, Hayes has been out for a while. Um, there's been definitely times where we've missed his ability to pull wide and create that 2v2 on the wide areas. So Saka can come a bit inside and um, be a bit more effective in, in central areas, as well as Martinelli as well. So am I concerned? No, I want to see how it develops. Is, if this is a thing where they want to try and kill me every game, I mean, fair enough. Um, try, try your best, Arsenal. Um, but um, look, I, I, in all jokes aside, it's just a case of it is what it is right now. It's just how games are, are, are panning out. There are things definitely that um, you can take. Uh, apologies. Uh, there, there are things that you can definitely take and um, make a make a sort of problem out of. Or we 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 aren't keeping compact enough in our build up. We're not trying to. Um, uh, we're not having people in central areas to receive the ball and get the ball through the lines, which create better chances. Sure, that's definitely a thing. But the fact is, is right now, is it something that we can develop? Is it something, that, a problem that can't be changed and can't be worked on? I'm pretty sure Mikel has changed Marston's position this past couple of games to make him a lot deeper. And that's meant to be how we access the final third in the, in in games, and especially the Champions League. It's not like we're, cons- we're uh, thrift thrifty with our goals. We're scoring quite a few. So I think it's a case of that's just how games are going right now. Teams are more wary of us, and we've got to find out ways, like we did with Kai yesterday, like we did with with uh, with Martin before against Wolves. We've got to find ways to get around that, and uh, uh, it's it seems to be working. So we'll have to continue working on it and continue trying to get pick up points and score goals. Uh, Matt, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think for me the biggest difference is last season. As Curran said, you know, we'd start quickly. But more than just start quickly, I think it's early goals. I think what we need to realise is teams show huge respect to us, and rightly so. But we've earned that respect from every team, more or less, in the league. That, you know, we play them home or away, they're not going to be like, okay, we're going to go attack them. Unless if, obviously, you're your Newcastles or whatever else teams, uh, or, you know, potentially a Bournemouth, etc. But We've earned that respect from teams that teams will sit off against us. They will double, triple, quadruple up on our wingers. They'll make sure there isn't an easy overload. They'll make sure that, you know, they sit really deep and really compact. And I think one thing which came from that on the back end of last season is teams thinking they could score an early goal against us, Uh, which even, you know, the start of this season with a Fulham goal, I think teams know that Arsenal, if they get an early goal, then their game plan more or less goes out the window. And teams also know that the best time to probably hit Arsenal is at the start when they're potentially a bit, you know, not fully ready. 
So we've eliminated that factor of conceding silly early goals, which is good. And now it's a case of when we score an early goal, I think opposition's game plans largely go out the window, like the Wolves one did, for example. It should have been a lot more than the 2-1 it ended. And the Lawns one, which did end 6-0. I think it's such light and day when we do score an early goal. And I think that's a huge difference because, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Premier League this season, uh, we haven't scored a single goal in, I think, the first 15 to 20 minutes, other than Wolves being our first one. Obviously, Luton last night. But before that, Wolves being our first one. I think that's testament to teams showing us the respect and us not being able to start quickly because teams know that if we start quickly, then they've got huge problems. So the game then ends up petering out slightly. You know, you're not going to be at the exact same incredible level for 90 minutes. And it's been the last of stages of the game where we finish strongly and come to the point where, all right, we have to score, you know, we have to keep sustaining pressure. We show that extra bit of composure, which happened yesterday with Zinchenko and Erdogan, which was really good. And that's just how it is. And I think it's we're not used to, per se, playing a team. Well, no team's used to playing as deep as we've been playing weekly. It's just something you have to get used to and find different sustainable strategies which work. But ultimately, I think scoring early goals completely throws game plans out the window. And that's something we haven't quite been able to do this season, for the most part, bar against Wolves, where I don't think it's a coincidence we got a second in a few minutes. Yeah, um, yeah, I tend to I tend to agree with both of you. I think it just it's kind of a product of the way that we're playing this year and the way that teams are tending to approach us. Uh, I just thought it was a curious stat. Um, you know, thought that would be uh, interesting maybe to dive, dive into that and uh, dissect a little bit. Um, so we're over the hour mark. So there's a couple more things I want to quickly get to, and the first is. Um, what we do at Villa, right? Because like, like I mentioned before, like, um, you know, anyone listening to this probably has heard at this point, uh, Mikel Arteta is going to be suspended for that match, right? He's not going to be on the touchline. It's uh, probably going to be Albert Stoivenberg who's, um, you know, taking the reins there. So Villa have been, I think Villa are in fourth at the time of recording. And, uh, you know, they've been a very, very impressive team. I think Unai Emery has them, uh, running very smoothly these days. I think there are, you know, obviously a dark horse for a Champions League spot, definitely a favorite for a Europa League spot at this point in time. We're going to Villa Park on Saturday, and we're not going to have our manager. We're not going to have, you know, maybe an emotional catalyst for us there. And, um, you know, I just wonder what you guys think about how much that's going to affect how we play, right? And whether that's, something highly concerning or whether that's something that we can get away with. And, you know, just Stoivenberg knows what Arteta wants to do and Arteta is going to get that message to him. And it's just a matter of executing whatever the game plan is, whatever they decide on. And it's not the biggest problem that Arteta isn't there in the building, but um, yeah, Matt, what are, what are your thoughts on that? I personally don't think it will have a huge impact per se, because I think, Things are so well choreographed on the pitch that, you know, the players know what they want to do and they know when Arteta, or what's going to cause Arteta to be unhappy or happy. And I think, let's say, I'd say the biggest point of, you know, not having your manager in the touchline is when things do get a bit difficult and, you know, you're potentially being sustained against and you need that few minutes where your manager just calms things down. But ultimately, I think because of the level we're at, that shouldn't really be 
something which happens. And when you have players like Declan Rice, Gabriel Magalhaes, Saliba, and Bukayo Saka, Erdogan, etc., etc., that maturity should kind of come within, especially, as I say, with how well we are choreographed. So I don't think it will have a huge impact, but at the same time, I've not seen us coach without Arteta bar when uh, when he got had COVID against Man City, and that was a good few years ago. So it's difficult to say, and it's an absolute piss take that he's not there is probably more the irritating thing. But I, w- I wouldn't say it should have a huge impact on, on anything. Yeah. Curran, what do you think? I mean, Mikel is so enthusiastic and active on the touchline and during games. But look, I don't think it's going to be something that will um, be able to will be able to quantify um, before the game goes on. I, I I hope that there'll be you know a professionalism and a uh, an ability to see out see out this intense Villa atmosphere that's going to be created. They haven't lost since we were there last in, in February with the Jorginho winner. Um, so it's going to be a very tough game. So we're going to have to go there and be very professional. I mean, City are going to play them in a couple of uh, a couple of hours. I think, what, what is it, 8.15, I think it is. So um, let's see. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't see it being a, a game where um, it's going to be, you know, easy in, in, by any means. I mean, they've got a lot of, of good players. Um, players that we've actually wanted in the past and apparently still won in Douglas Louise. So it's not like they're a, they're a, a bad team. Uh, they've got a very good midfield. They understand what they're doing and they play Unai Ball as well as anyone. So we'll see what happens. So um, it'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting game. I, I don't really want to think about it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of want to think about uh, uh, City and Liverpool playing tonight and obviously the United-Chelsea game. I kind of want to uh, kind of enjoy some football before the panic sets in for for the weekend so um we'll see i mean it, it will also depend on you know they i think they have a couple of players that have are close to being suspended as well um if they pick up yellows against city which of course um at, at the uh, the 115 charge club is going to try and get some easy yellows to help their 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 exploits tonight so hopefully they can they can do us a favor for the weekend and uh, get someone suspended but um we'll see i i haven't really thought about it too much i've kind of been in this whole um trying to figure out what to write about kai because i want to do something about kai so it'll be an interesting game that's what i can still think of right now i no, think that's as fair. well just to uh just to add something as well i think as you know current says you can't exactly quantify it because it's not it's kind of an unknown it's the fear of the unknown, isn't it, really? But ultimately, obviously, I didn't really mention the fact, obviously, it is Villa away, which is not really the most ideal one, where you don't have your manager for. But that's how it is. That's what we got to put up with, whatever means it is what it is. And obviously, you know, as Curran said, it is weird that we don't have a manager on the touchline. Well, not don't have a manager. Don't have Mikel on the touchline, who is as enthusiastic and proactive as he is. But at the same time, as I say, professionalism you'd like to think that would be okay and shouldn't have such the impact, particularly obviously because Arteta still can communicate. It would just be a different way of communication. Yeah. I mean, where, where I am and um, you know, before we, before we end on better vibes where I am is that um, I'm worried, but I'm not massively concerned, right? You know, it's never, it's never a great thing to not have your manager there, but um and, you know, Villa Park is probably one of the hardest places that we can go this season. 
but you know, with all that being said, like you said, like you guys have mentioned already, we have Gabrielle and Rice and Odegaard and Saka. Um, you know, Jorginho will be at least in the squad. Um, you know, Zinchenko and Jesus. Uh, there's there's a lot of guys in that team who are you know in difficult moments going to you know try to get everyone to focus up and rally the troops and, and stuff like that. So. Um, it'll it'll suck that Arteta's not there to do that because I think he's very effective at it. But this is kind of uh, I I I'm gonna try to view it as a test of kind of the leadership of the guys on the pitch because I think that is something that you know is going to have to be at a high level if we want to you know achieve great things this season. So we'll see. I'm not again. I'm not like freaking out that Mikel's not going to be there. It's just you know little little thing that we have to overcome. Um, you mentioned Douglas Louise earlier, Curran, and you know that that's someone that we've been linked with uh, pretty consistently for a while now at that sixth position. But recently, we have been linked to Joao Palinha from Fulham, um, who, uh, like I said, also plays defensive midfielder, uh, has been linked to Bayern in the past. Now reports are coming out that we're interested in him that you know we'd try to sign him i'm not sure if that would be in january or in the summer um we'll see but um you know before we put a bow on this and go watch uh you know liverpool chelsea kind of scrap in the mud and uh villa and city hopefully put on a better show uh i just wanted to get you guys' thoughts on on the polina links and whether or not that's a guy that you would like to see in an arsenal shirt so um Curran, I'll go to you first. Look, I, I initially I thought the minute I heard it, I was like, no, there's no way. But <laughs> it just shows how much the like media, how players are presented, influences like the thinking behind whether they're a good player or not. Because instantly I was just like, no, there's no way. Same same thing I did with Trossard. No, no way, can't do it. But when you think about it. It makes sense. Like it does make sense when you think about what we kind of need. It would allow for us to implement a kind of a box as a rest defense, so like a, a four-man rest defense. So Gabriel Saliba, uh, Rice and Polinia, it's like a four as a box, and then push everyone forward for like the entire foot. So it's having like a six-man line of people up up top. So you could have, for example, Marcelli, um Erdegaard, uh Havertz. Uh, Jesus, uh, I don't know Trossard and um, and Saka, like for example, I, I don't know. So you could have six. You could have a six-man front line. And you could really push that. Uh, instead of having five, you could have an extra man in 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 attack. So it would create more opportunities for overloads and more opportunities to get the ball into the final third and into the box where we can you know score goals hopefully a bit earlier than we have been at uh, at this moment in time. But also, I don't think it'll happen. <laughs> personally um i still think i mean um i think it was actually i think it was while we were on, on uh, recording this is uh simon motwell's come out and said arsenal looking to sign a defender in, in in the january transfer window and it makes sense mm-hmm. we have five fit defenders um for january it doesn't make sense to be uh to to put out uh again another signing where it doesn't address the fact that if saliba goes down we're still kind of struggling to see what happens with the with the defense and after last season we have to address it because he is our most important defender 
Gabriel as the leader, Saliba is quite clearly someone that is um, dictates our build up and makes sure that we get we get the ball out into the into the middle third and maybe in the final third if he tries to switch. He's not very good. He doesn't switch a lot. He's a very good uh, on board on the ball defender. He can switch. Uh, the ball to Marcelli or, or play down the line to Saka quite easily, but he's much more ad- uh, at this moment in time playing in the short passes. Um, I do think that there is a need to address that, and I do think that's one we um, we go for. It could be an Osman Diamande, it could be um, a Kevin Danso, it could be an, any number of players, but it is someone that we need that central centre-back role um, or even a right back, and then you can move White to um, centre centre back if need be, like we did um, after the holding debacle. Um, there were times we played right party right back and, and uh, um, White to right centre back. We can also do that. So if you want to get, for example, a, a Jeremy Frimpong, I don't think it'll happen in January, but um, that could be something that happens. Or find someone a bit more raw or do some scouting, maybe another Kiwi signing, something like that. You can do that as well. But the main thing is is to have cover just in case because he's so crucial to how we build up and how um we keep our line high if we if, if our line isn't high both these guys Gabriel and Saliba are in the opposition half a lot of the time you can't maintain that with someone that isn't comfortable I, I don't mind Royal Walters but he's not at that level yet he can't he hasn't you can't uh, throw him into a title run in it's not it's not that it's not sort of the case so for me, it has to be a signing that can come in and really event. I like Usman Diamande, Kevin Danso as well, someone that did very well against us when we played long. There's there's, there's names out there. So um, that, what I feel, is the most you know, pressing need at this moment in time. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think that's a good point. I'm not... I don't... I, I agree that I don't think Paulinha is very likely in January. We'll see what happens in the summer, although we've got pretty big um a pretty big shopping list for the summer as well. But yeah, the the defender point makes a lot of sense. I, I did I did see that report um a little while ago. I, I think I think going for a defender makes a lot of sense, right? Because like you said, we've got five guys fit. Now I think it's White, Sleeva, Gabriel, Kivior, Zinchenko. Uh reports have come out recently that Tomias is going to be out for best case scenario, three to four weeks, probably more four to six. Yeah. And party's still coming back. So we really do not have any right back options outside of white at this point in time, unless you want to play Cedric or real Walters. And um, those, those are both one more than the other. I'm guessing you, I'm guessing you can guess which is uh, yeah. not preferred. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, just one more thing. The only reason, I'm not too keen on Pellini is because it's not that I'm not keen. It's just I don't think it will happen. It's worth part of the club. If part is if party leaves, if we get an offer for Parte and he leaves, then I think he comes. I think he will. But I do think it's more likely that a club like Liverpool, who need a six, like desperately need a six, yeah. will, will probably come in for him. But I, I have nothing against the the guy coming in. I, I know he gets he gets a lot of yellows, um, and he he's but he's one of the best tacklers in the league, and he's not as bad on the ball as people keem to. Uh, keep making him out to be so um yeah i've got nothing against him i just don't think it's it's feasible to squad building wise especially if um party still at the club so yeah no i yeah i i agree it it definitely feels like more of a move for the summer not only because of party but also because you have elneny there you have Jorginho there but all three of those guys 
appear likely to depart in the summer. And Paulini, I think, makes a lot of sense as a guy that you bring in upon at least two of those guys taking off. Um, yeah, so hopefully Liverpool don't go in for him in January. I think if that happens, I, I like our odds of getting him in the summer. But yeah, um, we need to get a defender, whether or not that's a right center back or a right back, because I think we're really um, kind of in, I don't want to say dire straits, but we're, we're headed there in, in, in terms of numbers. So we'll see. But um, Matt, uh, what are what are your thoughts on, you know, not only Paulinho, but, um, you know, what our priority should be next month? I think a defender's an absolute no-brainer. I think Arteta's quotes recently as well, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he almost deluded to us being a tiny bit short. I think it's inevitable that we did want to bring in a defender in the summer and it just couldn't quite come to fruition. You don't want to just buy someone for the sake of it. And, you know, I'm sure ever since that window closed or even during that window, we have a list of names or a bunch of players or new players who added to that list who we think, okay, you could be a job, you know, you could be the guy who's in the summer, you could be someone who we go for in January, this person's availability could be good, this person's availability could maybe only be in the summer. So for that reason, I think a defender's absolutely inevitable. And a midfielder, as uh, as Curran said, with party situation, that's probably the thing which dictates it the most. And I think what's important too is, with that midfielder, I don't think we'll sign too many midfielders in terms of, you know, if we got that pattern, linear type profile if we got another midfielder it's probably more likely to be an eight if you will uh and obviously then you've got Vieira you've got Smith Rowe you've got Havertz you've got Erdegaard uh, so you've got a lot in that position and then you've got Lewis Skelly coming through you've got Patino who people have high hopes for and you've got uh and then in the sixth position you've got Oneni who probably leaves soon enough you've got Jorginho who you don't know but is a useful player to to have around for sure and obviously party injuries etc and obviously Declan Rice so I think it is inevitable that a six is signed but in January I'd more say that it'll be not a wild card signing per se but I think it'll be an opportunistic signing if we get someone other than a defender in January and that almost goes down to as I say who's available but who's available does that is that exactly what we want you know if it was the summer would we want that same name and I think that's an important thing to consider. Whereas with the defender, I think it will very much be a case of bringing in one of the players on the list, as Curran mentioned with Danto, etc. I think Diamande would, if if that was to happen, it would be in the summer. I just can't see us paying a release clause or a lot of money for a young defender in January. So yeah, ultimately, just the defender is a no-brainer, and I'd be absolutely shocked if we didn't sign one in January. And then in the summer is uh probably when the midfielder and other stuff like that happens. But once again, that could be that opportunity could be Paulinia being available in the uh in the January window for for whatever price, considering obviously, you know, the title aspirations or Champions Champions League aspirations, etc. So all just depends on player availability, but a defender's nailed on for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think that's absolutely right. Um yeah, we'll see. I mean, um, I, I think you're right in that defenders almost assuredly happening, and then uh, hopefully Polini is something we can pull off in January. I don't, I don't think we will, and um, yeah, we'll go from there. And hopefully, we can at least shore up the the numbers a little bit so that you know these these injuries that we're racking up don't derail any title challenge like they did last season. So fingers crossed on that front. But um, you know, we've uh, we're almost clocking in at about 90 minutes now, so we'll. We'll call it there. Uh, Curran, Matt, 
thank you guys so much for joining. Thank you for being here and coming back. It was lovely to speak to both of you again. And um, yeah, we'll uh, you know just make sure to enjoy whatever happens with Liverpool Villa and uh, City Chelsea. Or sorry, uh, Chelsea United. Um, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a really great conversation. It's been um, you know excellent talking talking footy with you guys so um you can follow current at current bop you can uh find current um as part of the ball over passion show on youtube they do excellent stuff really enjoy watching them um and then matt you can find on twitter at matt j afc and he is on the afc newsday podcast which is also really excellent uh, listen and watch uh, so i recommend checking out both of those shows both of those podcasts uh, i don't think you'll be disappointed at all and um yeah thanks for coming on guys thanks very much for having us and um thank you for being here dear listener uh thank you for you know spending the last <laughs> however long has been with us and um you can follow me on twitter at, Sh- at shamsdale uh he's not here but you can follow sash at lt arsenal you can follow the pod at this week arsenal if you're watching on youtube please be sure to like comment and subscribe um like i mentioned before i've got a video coming out later this week talking about referees so that should be fun and uh yeah until then you know stay safe um you know watch the footy um keep rooting for the gunners and we will talk to you soon hopefully after a win at villa park regardless of whether mikel arteta is there so uh catch you later and have a good rest of your day bye bye Maybe we'll have a good surprise for you.